I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 3. So, but first, I got a story to tell you. Man, this was so funny. So, <clears throat> last night I go to my 20th high school reunion. And I think I mentioned that last week. And it was a good time. It was at uh, Das Beer Hall in uh, Parkville, because I went to Parkville High. And um, so I get, like, in the room, and I start, like, talking to some people, and they're very, you know, friendly, and it's kind of like it's a whole room of people that you kind of sort of know. Um, by the way, it was really cool because I found myself, like, you know, you're, you're in this place, and you're talking to people because of a shared past experience, you know, that we all went to high school together. But the entire time, like, I didn't really, like, the people who actually ended up showing up weren't, like, really close to me in school. Um, so I actually ended up not talking a whole lot about, like, old times and things like that. I actually spent the entire evening talking about you all <laughs> uh, and my family and, and Amy. And you guys, oh, you just got to hear about Amy. You got to hear about James and Henry. And you got to hear about my, my church, uh, New Hope Community Church. I mean, that was the thing that I spent. It was actually kind of funny that I spent this whole night just talking about you guys. So um, it took me a lot of, uh, took a lot of joy. But anyway, it brought me a lot of joy. But um, there was this one fella, and, uh, and I go in, and he, you know, comes up to me. He thought I was somebody else. Um, and uh, he, he's like, oh, how you doing, Joe? He did remember my name, but I had a name tag on. Um, and we get to talking, and we get to that part of the conversation where it's like, okay, what do you do? And he looks kind of down for a second, and he kind of puts his head in his chest, and he says, well, it's complicated. And, you know, I'm a pastor. I, I, I understand that when someone, we're talking about jobs and, and work, when someone says it's complicated, that I understand maybe, you know, he's in between work, maybe he's in between jobs, maybe he just recently lost a job. I, I, I don't know. I'm happy to change the conversation to a lighter tone. However, that's not what he meant when he said it's complicated. He looks up from his chest and he says... I'm a PhD in Boston, and I went and got my doctorate in Pittsburgh. And right now, I work with monkeys, and I train them to play video games. And while they're playing video games, I monitor their brain activity in such a way that I can record and recover data in order to apply that data to uh, app technology that helps stroke victims with their recovery. And I'm like, geez, man, you win. <laughs> you win the reunion. <laughs> like, and anyway, I was just trying to figure out, like, you know, God puts these, like, little moments in, our, in, in pastor's weeks, and it's like, you know, I got to fit that into a sermon somewhere. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess if, if, if we can train monkeys play video games and help stroke victims, you and I can get through Galatians 3 together with God's help. Um, so would you please um, stand uh, for the reading of the Word of God? We're going to begin in Galatians 3. We're going to start in verse 23. And we're going to go through the end of verse 7 in chapter 4. Now before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian 
our custodian, our babysitter, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, or Daddy, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son, a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, then an heir through God. Brothers and sisters, all flesh is grass, and the beauty of this grass is like the flower of a field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this, the word of our God, endures. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. So this past Thursday, I got to do one of my favorite pastoral duties, and I went out to Howard County General. And I met Lydia Gray Shrek for the first time. Tom and Carissa were just glowing, and Carissa is recovering really well. And they showed me pictures of Gabe and Zeke holding their new baby sister. And it was just a joy uh, to be with this family and to pray for them. And I asked them to tell me a little about their name choice. And they said that the middle name, Grace... Uh, as we've talked about before, it in, implies God's loving kindness. It, it's like every good kind of good thing. God's holy influence. It's a gift freely given. As Paul uses it in Galatians, it's the Greek word charis, which is, of course, where Carissa gets her name from. So here's this mother and this daughter that right from her birth have grace in common. That's so cool. And then they told me about her first name, Lydia. They said that they just loved the name and that Lydia was a biblical name from a strong woman of God. And so I went back after I left the hospital and I read up on the story of Lydia. And I think it's worth our while to have a look at it as a precursor to our time in Galatians. It's from the book of Acts chapter 16. And, and, and Luke is telling us about a time... When Paul, um, who writes the letter to the Galatians, Paul comes to the Roman colony of Philippi. This is a missionary journey that was just after the Jerusalem Council, which is kind of like, it was an important meeting of the leadership of the early church, uh, where they had to discuss a, a topic very similar to that challenge that was facing the churches of Galatia, namely the question of how Jewish do Gentile converts to Christianity 
have to be. Now, in the end, it was decided that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, and they should continue to abstain from sexual immorality, but that's it. This is, of course, great news to the Gentiles. There's, there's nothing that's going to hold them back. Paul he just is commissioned by God to be the one who is going to be sent out to the Gentiles. And this really puts a kick in his step as he launches out towards Europe. And in Acts 16.12, we're told that Paul and his companions, they reached this Roman colony of Philippi which is, of course was occupied primarily of Gentiles, but probably had a small Jewish population. Luke actually switches to the first-person narrative at this point in Acts, implying that he was there with Paul. On the Sabbath, the group goes just outside the city gates to the riverside to pray. And as they're speaking with these women, they meet this woman, Lydia, from uh, Thyatira, who was a seller of purple goods. Thyatira was a city known for its expensive purple dyes, which means that if Lydia sold purple clothing and other goods, she was probably a businesswoman who was quite wealthy. Luke also tells us that she was a worshiper of God. This means that although she probably wasn't Jewish, she was a follower of Yahweh. And Luke tells us that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, conveniently, they were at the riverside, so she immediately became baptized, got baptized, and afterwards, uh, she invites Paul and his companions to stay at her house. In fact, Luke even tells us that Lydia's household was baptized along with her, meaning her family and her servants, again implying her wealth and her influence. By the time the group leaves Philippi, Lydia's house is used as a meeting place for Christ's followers, and it's not a leap to imply that Lydia is the first Christian leader in Europe. May Lydia Grace Shrek follow in this example and be a woman who loves to worship her God and use her blessing to benefit others. This story is an excellent example of the practical implications of Paul's radical, revolutionary words at the end of chapter 3 in Galatians. We're continuing in our series today, One Gospel, One Family. It's a series on Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, and Galatians is a letter written by Paul to be a people, to a people who have been troubled troubled by some in their community who are telling them that in order to be true Christians, it's going to be necessary for them to effectively act more Jewish. Now, it's absolutely true that what would become the Christian faith arose out of Jewish tradition. Centuries before the time of Jesus, God called Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, to be the father of a great nation. God told Abraham that that through him, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And and for an old man in the middle of nowhere, that must have felt like an impossible task. But, But Abraham, he began this journey, but it was a journey of faith. It wasn't a dessert journey that, that, that focused on his own righteousness. It was a journey that followed this God. And this faith uh, that he walked in, this journey of faith, would extend to generations beyond him all the way to Jesus of Nazareth. 
the descendant of Abraham, who would be Israel's representative Messiah. Jesus embodied Israel. You see, the story of Israel up to that point was not one that would have read a ring that would not ring strongly with the mission of global renewal, restoration, and reconciliation back to God. In fact, in speaking about the story of Israel, Paul several times in the passage for today uses the word curse. The point wasn't that Israel itself was a curse, or that their call was a curse, or even that the law of Israel was a curse, but rather that Israel's failure to live up to its calling, trusting in its own righteousness, the failure to live up to its calling um, had been what cursed them to the life of exile and occupation, much like how they were currently occupied by the Roman Empire in Paul's day. Under Father Abraham, Israel was called blessed to be a blessing, and centuries later, Israel once again sat under the oppression of yet another Gentile superpower. The people longed for a time when God would put things back together again and set Israel back on the right path. Thing is, God had much bigger plans than simply the renewal of one people and one people group. God's plan involved the gathering of one single multi-ethnic family that contained people from around the world who would be God's assembly, God's gathering, His ecclesia, His church. The church would receive their marching orders no longer from Israel's law, but rather from the gospel proclamation that God was putting the whole world back together again in Jesus the Messiah. Now remember what we said earlier about Israel being under a curse. Well, the curse kind of had two dimensions to it. The first thing to be said is that Israel was given uh, the law to instruct them on um, how to live. The law helped them to know how to be God's people as they were surrounded by others. The problem was they didn't really live up to this law. In fact, the whole mission was widely kind of derailed by Israel's failure. You might say that they missed the mark of the law, which is exactly what the word sin means. To sin means to miss the mark. So the first dimension of Israel's curse was that they were enslaved to their own sin, which prevented them from being a blessing to others. The second dimension of the curse was the consequences of that sin, namely that Israel repeatedly found itself oppressed by various different superpowers. So then God does something brilliant. He takes on flesh, not just any flesh, he takes on Jewish flesh, lived a life of righteousness, and died a sacrificial death on, get this, the very instrument of oppression that those Romans were using to show just how powerful they were, the cross. On the cross, Jesus died for the sins of humanity and defeated death itself by being raised on the third day in resurrection. This new life was the first fruit of a new creation that would point towards the cosmic reconciliation of all things under Christ Jesus, under King Jesus. 
Israel was no longer under the law. They were under the rule and reign of their rightful king. They had the freedom now to live like it, and their job was to spread this gospel good news to the ends of the earth. And the church would be a people that were fueled by the mission to make disciples of all nations, disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples. Now, the word disciple implies discipline. It's the word mephetes, a a pupil, a, a learner a student of the Master Jesus who would offer up teaching on a whole new way of being human. More on that this fall when we study the Sermon on the Mount. But the life of the disciple would be to learn from the Master and then take what they learned and spread it to others. Now, you might be wondering, hey, I thought you just said that the church wasn't under the law anymore. Well, you're right. If you are in Christ, you aren't under the law. But here's the thing. You were bought at a price, and you were set free for a purpose. More accurately, you were set free for God's purpose. You were set free so God could show you what purpose really means. You were set free so God could show you what freedom means really means. You were set free so God could show you what liberty really means. You were set free so God could show you what righteousness really means. For each of us in Christ Jesus, his freedom manifests itself in a life of faith guided by God's Holy Spirit. Now, this life of faith, of freedom, of purpose is what connects us to the promise that God made all of those years to Abraham. Through Jesus, God would use his church to spread the gospel to all nations. In a sense, just like Abraham and his descendants, we were not blessed by Jesus in order that we might merely be a blessing unto ourselves. We were blessed to be a blessing to others. We were blessed by Jesus in order that we might spread the incredibly good news that God's kingdom is at hand under the rule and reign of Jesus. That's the context of what Paul is talking about in Galatians 3. Some of us are reading uh, N.T. Wright's commentary on Galatians along with studying the text, and, and he uses this really cool analogy to discuss the contrast between the former things in the law and the current life of the Spirit. He talks about this 19th century tightrope walker named Charles Blondin, who once stretched a rope across Niagara Falls and walked back and forth in front of a walking crowd. Blondin would do all sorts of funny things, like sitting on a stool and eating some food while he was out there. And one day, Blondin looks at the crowd, and he asks anyone who would like to be taken across the rope on his back. Well, evidently, one person actually came forward, and Blondin carried him across Niagara Falls on his shoulders. But here's Wright's point. Supposing these two men get halfway across this stretch of space, and the volunteer says to Blondin, hey, look here, Uh, this is all very well, but I don't really trust you anymore. I think I'd better do the rest of this by myself. Uh, Let me down, I'm going to walk my own from here. Blondin would have said, you are nuts. I trained years for this. You wouldn't last three seconds on this rope without me. 
You see, this is very similar to what Paul is saying in this Galatian letter in chapter 3. You see, there were some who had heard this gospel message and had begun a life of faith and who had walked out on that rope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then halfway across, they decided that they didn't really trust the Spirit's guidance anymore and they wanted to instead go back to trusting in the law. They wanted to go back to trusting in their own righteousness to earn their spot at God's table. And in a brilliant move, Paul looks to none other than Abraham to explain that those who belong to Christ will walk by faith just like Abraham did. God called Abraham to go, and he did. If you say nothing else about Abraham... God told Abraham to go, and he did. Just as we saw in our winter series, Abraham was a man who was far from being righteous. If his descendants were dependent upon Abraham's righteousness, they wouldn't have had a prayer. But instead, it says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the dangerous thing here would be for us um, to assume um, that uh, the dangerous thing here would be to put Abraham back in the driver's seat. Like Abraham's faith was the smart thing that he did to like earn God's favor. Favor. No, God was always in the driver's seat. We learn that, I think, repeatedly throughout our Identify series of the book of Genesis. The faith we have in Christ is only possible because of the faithfulness of Christ to the messianic mission. God always remains in the driver's seat. So if you're following that line of thought, one logical question you might have is, well, why was the law given in the first place then? And if that's your question, you're in good company because Paul asked the very same thing. He says that the law was added to Israel's story because of transgressions. Something was needed to keep the people grounded. And Paul puts it this way. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the coming faith until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now, the word guardian uh, used here in the ESV um, is an interesting word. The King James translates it schoolmaster. The NRSV translates it disciplinarian. Other translations say tutor or custodian or even babysitter. In the Greek, it's the word paedagogos, which specifically referred to Greek tutors who were often trustworthy slaves charged with overseeing the education and discipline of young boys in the elite class. Paul is saying here that the law acted as a paedagogos, an instructor or tutor who served a specific role. 
The law certainly highlighted the ways in which Israel's righteousness fell short of the glory of God, but it also acted to instruct Israel in a sort of elementary education before they came of age under the Messiah's rule. Yesterday, we had an opportunity, some of us had an opportunity to go to a birthday party for Landon Hobson, who has been celebrating his 13th birthday. And, and one of the things that New Hope has done is we've often gone to um, uh, these birthday parties, but they've also been like coming-of-age events. And what we've done is we've taken the opportunity to, to rally um, men or women, depending on the, 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 the sex of the, um, of the student, and we would just kind of rally around them. We'd go and do something fun, and then we'd go back to the house, and we'd have a meal, and we'd just kind of speak some words of wisdom into this young person. And that's what we did uh, with Landon yesterday. We got to um, just write him some notes and spend some time and pray for him. And it was just this wonderful time of acknowledging that uh, there's something of his childhood which has ended. There's something of the season that is behind him that is time to put that down. And there's now this new chapter, there's this new season that's opening up in front of him for the rest of his teenage years. And he just, we just wanted to be a community that kind of rallied around that. And I think that something about what Paul is saying about how the law operated was that in Christ, God's people has come of age. God's people have moved from the elementary principles of how the world works. You needed this guardian. You needed this babysitter to make sure that you uh, didn't get too out of hand. And now you are called to live in freedom in Christ. It doesn't mean that any of the things that necessarily, there were specific things that were talked about, um, morals and laws and rules, that we need to still have those conversations. We need to still acknowledge that things are right and there's right and wrong. But there's something about the freedom that comes in Christ. That, that, that that's a new day, that there's a new season, that there's a new covenant. Paul continues, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus, you, you have put on Christ. And then he says this thing that is just mind-blowing. This thing that has shaken the world, shaken the church, or I might go venture to say, that it has not shaken the church as much as it should. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Do not drift carefully by these words. They are words that can run counter to everything that we know about the world in which we live. Paul is not saying here that we are to ignore distinctions between different kinds of people. There were still Jews and there were still Greeks. Tragically, there were still slaves and there were still free men. Paul himself would give instructions to slaves who were Christians to obey their masters as if they were working for Christ himself, and later would write a letter to a man named Philemon regarding a slave named Onesimus. And there were still distinctions to be made between men and women. Paul would speak to that in several of his letters regarding marriage. But in each of these instances, the overarching truth is that despite whatever else there might be, they are one in Christ. 
despite everything else that might define them, their central identity comes from Jesus Christ. In Christ, the ground is level. In Christ, no person is better off. In Christ, we all have equal access to God. It is fascinating that in each one of those instances that I mentioned before, Paul makes the point that although distinctions exist, the oneness of Christ is the driving factor of the relationship. Here in Galatians, Paul makes it clear that even the Gentiles are heirs according to the promise of Abraham. That's huge. Even they in Christ are Abraham's offspring. In Paul's letter to Philemon, he encourages a slave master to welcome back this runaway slave as a brother. He even says, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. In Ephesians, Paul gives instructions um, to both men and women in regards to marriage and the household. But he prefaces the whole thing by saying that men and women should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He even tells men that the way they submit is by loving their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself, sacrificed himself up for her. This is all revolutionary language to a world that believes in entitlement and rugged individualism. You are all one in Christ Jesus. On the cross, Jesus accomplished through divine sacrificial law, uh, love what the law could have never done. He leveled the playing field and welcomed us into a life of faith, a life guided by our advocate, the Holy Spirit, who leads us into a life of maturity in Christ. Now, new hope. Does that mean we can live in any old way we want and just trust that it's all going to get worked out? No, because that wouldn't be a very mature way of looking at the abundant life that Jesus calls us into. No, we are disciplined into maturity, looking to follow the master Jesus as he shows us what life looks like when it's centered on God. And as God reaches you, just as God reached Lydia all those years ago at the Philippian Riverside, may he awaken in you the ways in which he intends to use your time, your talent, your treasure, as he has blessed you for the furtherance of his kingdom. If the Bible teaches us anything, it's that God can and will use ordinary people for extraordinary things. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, educated or uneducated, Republican or Democrat, young or old, married or single, black or white, wealthy or poor, all are one in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is diverse multi-ethnic family, all have a seat at the radical inclusivity of the Lord's table. Father, we just come to you today. We put these things that are hard for us to comprehend about connecting this story of Abraham to the story of Jesus and see that these promises that you made all those years ago, all those centuries ago, 
found their climax, find, found their culmination in the person of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, His sacrificial love on the cross, and then His resurrection are the things in which we find our identity. We find our identity in none other than Christ Himself. But in Christ Himself, we remind each other as we read in Scripture that the ground is level. There is no one who is better off than another person. We are all one in Christ. Father, thank you so much for that truth. I thank you for my friends here this morning. If there's anyone in this room that this is the first time they've ever heard this good news, I just pray that you would continue to work in them and whisper in their ear and tell them the things that they need to hear about your unending and undying love. Father, we just ask all of these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.